Today we're talking about families. Sophia Samatar certainly has an unconventional one. On one side, she's descended from a long line of Mennonites, a religious group related to the Amish. My great-grandfather was Amish. He was the one who then joined the Mennonite church, and then my mom's family were Mennonite after that. But Sophia's father grew up in Somalia, a predominantly Muslim country. He grew up in a nomadic society. As a boy, he herded livestock, camels and goats and so on. Sophia Samatar's unique background led her to search out other stories of Mennonite and Muslim interaction. And she found a little-known story about a small community of Mennonites who lived almost 150 years ago. There was a group of them who believed that Christ was going to return to Central Asia, that Christ would return to the East. So they set off eastward, and they wound up in the Khanate of Kiva, which today is Uzbekistan. And they had a village, which was called Akhmachet, which means the White Mosque. And that village existed for 50 years. I'm Sarah McConnell, and today on With Good Reason, how families blend different cultures and religious traditions. And later in the show, we'll look at how a new addition to the family can bring up challenging emotions for new parents. It wasn't until the love of my life said that she wanted to have a baby that all of these things welled to the surface, and I had to confront them. But first, Sophia Samatar is a professor of English at James Madison University. She's also the author of four books of science fiction and fantasy, and now she's writing a memoir. Sophia, your mother is American Mennonite. Your father was Somali Muslim. How did they meet? They met in Somalia, where my mother went to work as an English teacher for Eastern Mennonite missions. She herself was not a missionary. Well, it's, I mean, this is a little complicated, and it's actually one of the things that I explore in the book that I'm working on, because no... Outwardly or in a kind of very public way, this was not a missionary outfit with a lot of fanfare. However, people did a lot of English teaching and medical work as well. There were nurses, doctors. But at the same time, there certainly was a feeling that if anyone showed an interest in becoming a Christian, that was also very exciting to them. Tell me about Mennonites. Are Mennonites akin to the Amish? They are akin to the Amish. So we need a bit of a grain of salt here in that I'm more of a practicing person than a historian. But certainly Mennonites are a Protestant group, a peace group, and they would have come to the United States quite early on. So my first ancestor in this country came, I believe, in the 1740s. I know that it was before the Revolutionary War. From Germany? Uh, From Germany, yes. And tell me about your father. What sort of circumstances did he have when your mother met him as an English teacher in Somalia? Well, he was a Somali teacher. So they were were both teachers. um, And he was actually working with the Mennonites and helped my mom to learn the Somali language. 
When did you realize your circumstances as a child weren't the typical narrative that in America, your Mennonite mother had married a Somali man? I I feel that in many ways, I'm a bit of a late bloomer. I think a lot of people notice a lot of things before I do. It tends to take me a little bit of time. I, I really don't remember thinking about it until I was in about fifth grade. I began to realize that my family was not a regular family or any way that I was not viewed as a regular person. Um, And this came from other kids who would ask me, are you black or white? Which I had never thought about. And that was when I started to think, well, okay, which one am I? And then, well, what are my parents? And then, oh, they're, they're two different they're two different ones, which is not something that I had never thought about before, but it was sort of, it became a pressing question once I was being asked to answer the question. You know, trust a child to ask you such a thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> what did you, what did you come to say to them? Um, I tried out some different, I tried out different things. I used to say both. Then for a while I said neither. By the time I was in college, I was simply saying black, which I sometimes still do. I was saying African-American, which I still do. Um, but I think the most precise is really Somali-American, which is my, my preference. You are writing a memoir called The White Mosque that is partially about your own experience, also about a group of Mennonites who found themselves in a Muslim country in 1880. Tell me their story. So this is a narrative that I find absolutely fascinating. It is the the late 19th century. It is a period where there is a lot of sort of millennial fever. I mean, a lot of people are thinking, you know, it's going to be the end of the millennium. It's something big is going to happen. And maybe that's going to be that Jesus will come back. And among people who were thinking that way were these Mennonites who had settled at that time in southern Russia, in what's now Ukraine. And there was a group of them who believed that Christ was going to return to Central Asia, that Christ would return to the east. And so they set off eastward, and they wound up in the Khanate of Kiva, which today is Uzbekistan. Who were they led by? Um, They were led by a variety of figures. The person who became very central and very important was called Klaus Epp Jr. And he was a very charismatic preacher. And he had precisely calculated the time of Christ's return, which would be March 8, 1889. And the place would be Central Asia. So they settled there. They settled in Uzbekistan in the 1880s? Yes, they did. And they had a village, which was called Akhmachet, which means the White Mosque. And that village existed for 50 years. If Mennonites were early on mostly German and Swiss, how did this Mennonite community form in Russia? Well, a key element in Mennonite history is this tradition of pacifism and of not joining the military. This has caused many migrations of Mennonites over the years. And what had happened in Russia was that the Mennonites had been invited to settle there. Russia was looking for good farmers, and part of the deal was that they would not have to join the military. 
And so that looked like a good place. Now, around the time that the group I write about in the book was leaving, a lot of Mennonites were leaving that area because that privilege had been revoked. So they had been told, no, you will have to do some kind of military service. And this caused waves of of Mennonites to leave that area, many of them coming at that time to the United States and Canada. But the group that I wrote about said, we are not going to go west. The correct place to go is east. Tell me a little bit about the journey from southern Russia to Uzbekistan for these Mennonites. It was appalling. I mean, it was an excruciating journey. They traveled over all kinds of terrain. There were deserts. There were rushing streams they had to cross. There was mountainous terrain. They were not always welcome in every place that they went. They had trouble with various authorities along the way. And they suffered immensely from disease. So many, many people died, especially children. I mean, they had horses and wagons. A desert is not a place to cross with a horse and wagon. Um, So it was very difficult for them to get across it. And they devised a system where they would sort of drag things a short distance and then pause. And then they'd have to go back and drag the next one because they needed several horses to be dragging, more than usual to be dragging each of these um, vehicles. Just really, really painful. Now, the second time they crossed, they knew better. And they had um, local guides who were leading them. And they had camel drivers with camels. And so they actually took the wagons apart. And especially the women and kids and even goats were packed onto the camels. At what point in learning about this story and then learning more about it did you think, This so resonates with me, this idea of the Mennonite side of my family interacting with the Muslim side of my family. This was something that I felt really from the beginning, from discovering this story. My first reaction was sort of, Mennonites in Uzbekistan? What? (laughs) I just had never heard this, and I never had any idea that it would have happened. And at that time period, but I immediately found it really compelling because it is this early moment of Mennonite Muslim interaction. And that type of interaction will always be interesting to me because I have this family that is Mennonite on one side and Muslim on the other. What sort of interaction was there early on that you could document through these histories and memoirs? So the Khan welcomed them. He gave them land on which to settle. And They built a church, which is in the center of the village. And for local people, this was known as the White Mosque. I love that story because in the idea of this church that was known as a mosque or this mosque that was actually a church, there's something really wonderful and true about that flexibility, the flexibility of that image. And settling in Kiva was not the only time that Mennonites experienced this sort of extraordinary hospitality in this region. Along the journey, they stopped at another village where they were invited to use the local mosque as their church for their church services. They were kind of stuck there for the winter, and the local people said, look, you know, we're using it on Friday. 
you want it on Sunday, why don't you go ahead and, you know, you, you can have your church services there. Several people stayed in the mosque because the village wasn't very big and they were trying to make room for these, these strangers, these travelers who were passing through. And a number of people, including one of the memoirists that I read, who was a teenager at the time, was actually baptized in that mosque. What did you get from your father about the Somali side of your family? What did he talk to you about growing up that made you feel his Somali background? Well, my father was a historian, and he studied Somali history. And he was also very, very interested in poetry and in Somali oral poetry. So one thing that he gave me was a very, very strong confidence in the power of language and the power of poetry. And also a clear awareness of how much of our language, our poetry, narrative, song, how much of it is not written. In the culture that I've grown up in, we tend to privilege the written over the oral. You know, something that is written down, it lasts a long time, and something is official, you write it down. But actually, most of our storytelling is oral. It's, you know, it's gossip, and it's, it's people talking together, and it's, it's music. And I think, it, you know, that's something that has come to me from my father, and, and in particular from his work and the things he was interested in and the things he talked about. Did he also share with you more of the sort of lore of the nation as you were growing up? I mean, I, I guess I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that he really, you know, sat down and gave history lessons. <laughs> but when my brother and I were little, he used to tell us what he called childhood stories. And he grew up in a nomadic society as a boy, he herded livestock, camels and goats and so on. And the boys would be off in the camps, you know, taking the animals to wherever there was pasture in this very dry desert region. And so they would be away from their families and really a bunch of kids, you know, teenagers and, and younger kids. Um, my dad was quite young. He was, I think, six or so hmm. when he first went. And so there's all kinds of trouble and adventures that, <laughs> that you can imagine they would get into. One that I know really stuck with him uh, because he told it a lot was the time that a lion, a lion got over the, they would, they would build a sort of corral, um, a kind of um, structure to keep wild animals out. But a lion did get in and made off with, with one of the animals and jumped sort of very close to where my dad was sleeping. So really terrifying experience. Isn't that amazing that you have in your family stories of close encounters with lions? Yeah. <laughs> Who would have thought, right? Yeah. And it's really incredible when you, when you look at my dad and at his life, that this was his childhood. And then he wound up as a university professor in the United States. It's just an incredible story. Are there other writers who've inspired you to pursue non-traditional forms of memoir? 
Yes, there are a lot of them. Actually, one of my favorite writers and also a good friend of mine is Kate Zambrino. Her most recent one is called Book of Mutter, which is about her mother and, and mourning for her mother who passed away and also about being an artist. Another wonderful recent book is called Proxies by Brian Blanchfield, which is a set of quite short essays. So they'll be about different subjects like owls, and yet they're very personal at the same time. I'm interested in writers like these who are talking about the personal or using aspects of their own experience, but really the point is outside of that. I find this a very generous way of writing, a kind of outward-looking way of using personal experience. A major example of this is W.G. Zabalt, the German writer. And the self in his books is this very slight, kind of strange, shadowy character. So they're not memoirs in the sense of being, I'm going to tell you my story, but they're more like the stories of a person's thought processes. And so those books, books like The Emigrants, Vertigo, The Rings of Saturn, these were always in my mind. And I read them many, many times as I was working on the book. The book that you're working on now is helping you engage with this sort of mixture of cultures and think more about your identity now. How do you think we do across culture enter the stories of each other? This was my big question that I sort of started with when I was writing this book. How do we enter the stories of others? What are the different ways that we come into contact with others? And I sort of, you know, as I was working on the book, almost began a catalog of these different ways. So there's, you know, there's missionary efforts. That would be one way. And colonialism is another way. Or through the pursuit of knowledge, right, through the sciences, through commerce, through trade, through literature would be another one. Literature and language, often the literature of another place will inspire someone to become a student of the language, right? And that's another way that we kind of become part of another's story. But as I continued working on the book, I really came to see that question in a different way and to see it as it's not about trying to figure out how we enter the stories of others. We are made of the stories of others. And what we need is to recognize that. What we need is to recognize that it's not that we are so different from someone else and now we're having this moment of meeting but that actually, when you go back far enough, when you examine history, there are so many threads that tangle us together. And in order to create our individualized group identities, we ignore a lot of those connections. So we really are the stories of others. It's not about entering. It's about seeing where you are. What do you want readers to take from this? I would like readers to look at themselves with new eyes after reading this book and to look at their family histories in a different way and to maybe see, along with the traditional received family story, um, which, you know, many, many people have sort of the stories that are repeated around the dinner table or that you're told about your family and your people and who they are 
to see those stories, but also to be able to start looking to the margins of those stories and to maybe the strange, quirky connections that don't become part of the identity, but still belong to it. They're on the fringes of it. And when you go to those fringes and you start looking for those connections, then your identity expands. And I would like people to have that sense of an expanded or almost a dissolving identity to where you really start to see how deeply entangled you are with other people whom you wouldn't necessarily consider your own. Mm. Sophia Samatar, thank you for talking with me today and with good reason. Thank you so much for having me. Sophia Samatar teaches world literature at James Madison University. Coming up next, a father who says maybe we should call parenting childing instead. Christopher Phillips is a former instructor at Christopher Newport University, and he's the author of A Child at Heart, Unlocking Your Creativity, Curiosity, and Reason at Every Age and Stage of Life. After becoming a parent later in life, Chris realized how much children have to teach all of us. Chris, we call it parenting when you raise a child, but you say we should actually call it childing. Why, why do you say that? It turns out that there is a word, childing. I didn't know it. I did some sort of gumshoe work on Google, and it turns out to be a mid-13th century term that has a number of definitions, but one, the one that really struck with me was uh, to blossom from a healthy core. And that was pay dirt for me because I, unlike most approaches that take a social sciences stance or a psychological stance, I decided to take it from a philosophical perspective. And children raise us as least as much as we raise them. Do you raise them the way you were raised? I do not. I, I was scared to be a dad. You know, I had a dad who believed in punishing by, by violent acts. So it instills fear. It instills a sense that you um, better lay low, keep under the radar screen. And so that's, that's what I did a lot as a child. And um, those were things that I kind of pushed aside and kept dormant until it was my own turn to consider being a parent and then become a parent. So when you didn't want to have children, when you were in love with your wife and thinking, I like my life the way it is, was any part of that because you feared bringing children into the world or because, for instance, you thought childhood is not fun? These were things that I veered away from addressing. It wasn't until the love of my life said that she wanted to have a baby that all of these things welled to the surface and I had to confront them. And a lot of my fears initially, I think, were kind of realized because I didn't know what path to take as a dad. And uh, I did make a lot of mistakes. But once I just quit even thinking about my parents in their own mode and just was Chris, the dad, these are fellow human beings. I am their dad, um, but I'm going to treat them not as equal, but different. I remember one time Callie, when she was little, she um, just lifted up her foot and stepped on my bare foot. <laughs> and my initial reaction was just to swat her behind. Yeah. I managed to arrest that just before it was going to happen. Yeah. And um, that's when I realized these are things that can well up within me, but that can be channeled in other ways and that you can control your impulses if you choose to.
I appreciate that you wrote your book, A Child at Heart, because you yourself have experienced such a range of childhood rearing experiences from, you know, those of your own and the impulses that you tried to project and curtail. It's a daily adventure. I try to wake up and give myself a a minute or two just to reflect on that dad that I want to be today and to remind myself that any errors I make, I have to own up to them myself. I can't slough them off on my dad or my mom, that I do have certain impulses that I need to confront head on and and channel in, in ways that are healthy instead of ways that can be destructive and debilitating, not just for my child, but for me and everyone in my orbit. You know, we all have access to a lot of books about raising babies, checking temperatures. What do you want to share with us? I just believe that whenever there are moments of conflict, when there's conundrums, especially after some sort of heated incident, you know, oldest child uh, doesn't like that our, her, her little sister is playing with something of hers, that we should take a moment and sit down and reflect for them and even ask a question in a more timely and timeless way that addresses that specific circumstance. It's a, I would call it sort of the, you know, a, just a, a way of philosophical parenting. And just in, engage with people as equals, whether they're six or, or, or quite older, about what we can do to see to it that each of us has ample opportunity to blossom fully. Of course, you don't have teenagers yet. It'll be really interesting. <laughs> Wouldn't it have been funny if my wife had sat across me at that table that day at the restaurant and said, Chris, you know, I'm just dying to have a teenager. But I think that, okay, my daughter Callie will be 12 on August 18th, and gosh, she's already changed so much in this last year. I'm just astonished and astounded. She's becoming, you know, I hate to use the word little. I almost was going to say little woman. She's becoming a woman, and it's happening so quickly, and I was, you know, from a family of boys, and it's uh, it's a very wondrous and perplexing experience for me. And I'm just trying to relish every moment that I can with her. We we have on YouTube probably about, I don't know, 100, 200 one-on-one philosophical exchanges just between her and me. And these beautiful treasures uh, that I will always have. And I do wonder and worry when might be the last time. Hopefully never. Just like I wonder and worry right now, she still, just without thinking, grasps my hand when I go to school to pick her up. And I just appreciate it and try to, I don't know, feel that grasp and the warmth of her hand and how she does it without even thinking about it. And I wonder, is there going to be a last time without trying to get too melancholy about it? It doesn't mean there will be, but yet this young soul is changing so quickly before my eyes. And hopefully without being too cliche-ish about it, you you do uh, try to just embrace every moment. And I see that, um, that things are unfolding beautifully right now. Well, Chris, I so admire you for trying to be much more mindful and see what really works from the perspective of your own children. Thank you, sir. Christopher Phillips is a writer and former instructor at Christopher Newport University. His most recent work is A Child at Heart, Unlocking Your Creativity, Curiosity, and Reason 
at every age and stage of life. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason. Women in higher education are still struggling to achieve equality with their male colleagues. While more women are entering academia, too few achieve leadership positions, and they begin their careers at lower salaries and drop out of the tenure track more than men. Diane Hodge writes about this as a contributor in the book, Surviving Sexism in Academia. Diane Hodge is director of the School of Social Work at Radford University's Waldron College of Health and Human Services. She believes there is a glass ceiling in higher education, and it's frustrating women in their quest for equal status. Diane, you believe that though more women are becoming professors, very little has changed for the role of women in higher academia? Yes, from my own experience, from the research I've read, from our, my own research, it doesn't suggest that things are changing very quickly. Uh, certainly, there may be more women going into the field, but in terms of staying in the field, getting tenured, getting equal pay, sadly, that hasn't changed. Do women, do you think, do better in advancing in higher education than other fields outside of higher education, but it's just still a problem in higher education? Um, I don't believe so. You know, I'd have to refer back to Marianne Mason's work in comparing women who went to uh, medical field, law, and higher ed. Women in higher ed do worse. We do not have the same level of support we don't have the same level of pay equity, even compared to doctors and lawyers. What do you think that is? Higher ed is really a very solitary, kind of a lonely field in doing your work. You're very much on your own to get your work done. And I think for women particularly, you know, we're very relationship-based. And so without having additional emotional physical, financial support to do our work without having the ability to check in with other women and see how they're doing, you get very much focused that it's just you. And academia is very competitive. It's easy to fall back thinking, well, I'm just not handling this well, or I don't see how other people are doing this and I'm not able to do this. So what are you finding? How can you quantify the problem for women in higher education when you say there is still this glass ceiling? Well, to begin with, women have a much more difficult time making it to tenure and promotion. When we start out, we can start out in even numbers. And the question is, why can't we get women past the tenure and promotion hub? And that's really important because tenure is what gives you some security, some ability to say, well, I will be here for a while. I will be able to do projects that take more than a year or produce very quickly. And that takes some of the pressure off having to worry every day, am I doing enough? Am I doing enough? Am I doing enough? 
The problem of getting women to that point, though, is that it coincides almost exactly with a last chance for most women to start a family. And having children is not a quick production. (laughs) It causes a lot of stress. Do I take care of, you know, myself while I'm pregnant? Do I take that nap? Or gosh, I've got to get this other paper in because if I don't, I might not get tenure. Or your husband may be facing um, performance difficulties in his job, and there's a lot of stress on the couple. Who's going to pick up and drop off at daycare? Who's coming early from work? Exactly. And for couples where they're both academics, you really start getting a lot of stress trying to decide whose work is going to be more important that day. I'm so interested that nowadays there are equal numbers of men and women entering academia. Is that the case? And has it been that way for long? Oh, no, absolutely not. I mean, I think we just reached equal numbers of PhDs being granted across all fields in all doctoral programs, um, I think about five years ago. And that was the first time. So who do you think is acting as barrier to entry? Is it men in academia? Is it women? Well, I think it's institutional. I think the problem is the way the institutions have been set up to move newly hired academics to tenure has not changed, I think, ever. I mean, as far as I know, most universities still maintain the five- or six-year minimum to getting tenure. Most of them maintain the same direction of that track. There's no way to kind of get on and off the tenure track. And that greatly influences a woman's ability to stay focused to getting toward tenure and promotion. For people that aren't familiar, who've heard of tenure, but don't really understand why this would be a problem for women as they're coming in droves into the process, can you simplify it for us? Well, to make tenure at most universities, there's requirements about the amount of teaching you do and how well you do it the amount of research and the type that you do, and the amount of service you're performing. It's basically job expectations. How you do it and how long it takes you to do it and how much you have to put into doing it doesn't really matter. It's just this has to be done, and it has to be done within a time limit, and usually that time limit is five or six years. If you're not able to keep up with that, if you're not you know, things happen in your life and you need a longer break, it can greatly influence whether you're going to make it to that tenure level. Do you usually get a break in the tenure process? No. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely nothing. You're lucky if you can take, you know, a little time off in the summer. Um, Because again, it's just an expectation that the work gets done, not how you're getting that work done. And most men and women seeking tenure are roughly what decade of age? Well, at the least, you'd be in your late 20s, early 30s. And that would be considered young to start in the tenure track position. For women, of course, that is prime childbearing age. And if you pass that up and wait till you have tenure, you could be pushing 40 years old. And of course, the ability to have children after 40 becomes much, much more difficult. Have you seen firsthand the difference for same-age men and women seeking tenure when it comes to managing families at the same time? Oh, absolutely. 
I mean, not only, of course, men aren't the ones having to make people, and uh, that frees you up considerably. (laughs) It's also institutionally how it's looked at. You know, for women, it's looked at more like uh, a temporary disability. For men, it's looked at more as stability, that you're going to be here a while, that you're going to work hard at your job because now you're going to have a whole family to support. That's a fascinating difference, isn't it? Yeah, and I think that, again, goes with, you know, how women reconcile in their mind whether they can do it or not. Because if you every day you're walking in and the same message is, I don't think you're going to make it, you're looking pretty rough that pregnant, you're looking tired, you know, people will tell you that. (laughs) And it does start to influence your own thinking on whether you are going to get through that. I think for men, you know, they don't see it. And men don't usually talk about that at work. They don't talk about, oh, I'm, my wife's having a baby and I haven't gotten a lot of sleep. They come in, they do their work, and so it's easy to forget that they are also dealing with this. And I think by not having that out in the open, it greatly influences how people view you. I've heard there's also sort of a limit on how many children you're expected to have if you are to be considered tenured track in academia. Yeah. When I started myself, I talked to older women and I said to them, you know, how are you able to have children and do this? And they said, well, just don't have the third child because that one's the career killer. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I couldn't quite understand what they were talking about. You know, how was that the breaking point? But of course, as I had my children, and as most people have children, they realize that when you're outnumbered, and the cost of daycare triples, it's very, very hard to hang on past two children. Did you have a career killer? I did not. (laughs) I did have three pregnancies. Uh, Unfortunately, I lost one baby. Mm, I'm sorry. Um, Yeah, and, you know, there again, you still have the process of being, as I told them, pregnant all the time. But having two children was difficult enough, and I had both of them before I reached tenure. Did you think about the admonition, don't have a third? Did that inhibit you? It gave me pause. It did. Um, And I was like other women getting older, so that was also problematic. And um, I had complicated births, and the thought of being out longer for uh, recovery or illness related to that I knew that that was going to probably be a little too much to handle. So if, as you say, young women and young men are entering higher education and getting doctorates in fairly equal numbers right now, Mm -hmm. which is very exciting to hear. Yeah. How many are going on to get tenure gender-wise? Well, and that's harder to say. Um, More and more, I think both men and women are looking at a work-life balance. But at this point, we still have more women dropping out before tenure. We're not always sure why, but certainly anecdotally, we hear a lot of women talking about either the work-life balance or the general climate of academe, just basically how they're dealing with the stress that they've already endured through their doctoral work. Tell me the story of your own experience as you, as a young woman, decided to go uh, for your Ph.D. and then on for tenure track. Well, part of that, I think, was just that I had always enjoyed 
being in education. I loved going to school. I was that kid. Um, I also came from a family where the women really did not have the opportunity to go to college or higher ed. And once I had started working in the field after I got my master's in social work, I realized already that this was going to be very difficult if I wanted to have a family. When you're on call, when you have irregular hours, when you have to attend to emergencies, you know, how do you do that when you have to get home and you have to take care of a child? And I wasn't seeing a lot of role modeling for that. You know, most of the women who kind of hit that point I saw were leaving the field. So part of me stupidly thought that going into higher ed would be better because there seemed to be so much more flexibility in that work. Did you ever have an experience where somebody above you um, made inquiries about your tenaciousness, given that you were on a mother track? (laughs) Every day. Uh, I mean, really, it was always, whether it was subtle or overt, Somebody was always asking me, well, are you really going to come back to work? Are you really going to stay? I had one, actually, colleague who said to me, you know, I wish you would take motherhood more seriously. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, and that was while I was still struggling to get tenure. And I thought, well, you know, a lot of my colleagues at the time were older men, and I thought, well you know, maybe you just don't know. Maybe you just don't know because you haven't seen anybody do it. So I didn't try to personalize those kind of comments so much. What about wage differences? Is it just tenure track or is there still a problem between the genders when it comes to wages for professors? It's a gap that doesn't seem to close ever. And it doesn't seem to matter whether you are in social work like myself, which is a female majority profession, or if you're in one of the, quote, hard sciences or not. The problem seems to just be intractable. Uh, Our own recent study of our social work colleagues across the country showed that the average difference between white, non-Hispanic males and women at just about every level, averaged about a $6,000 difference. But don't you think that difference is because the men have been tenure-track for longer? It doesn't show that in our study. What happens is that if you compare even then men and women at each level in academe, at the associate, at full professor level, in fact, the gap widens. So even if you make it to an associate professor level or a full professor level, you are still going to be making less, but you're going to be making even less than white, non-Hispanic males in the same profession. Can you tell me why or why you hypothesize that might be the case? You know, we're always looking at why that could be. Some people will talk about, you know, women not advocating for themselves or negotiating well. And really, I've never even had the experience in this field of negotiating my salary. People always say it's pretty much set once you are hired. So when you're talking six years later, 12 years later, you're still rolling on what you were offered when you started. If you start lower, it just magnifies as you go through the academy. So what about an argument that would say, hey, If you're a woman and you start a family and Mm -hmm. you find yourself disadvantaged by that, but you're determined to 
raise terrific children and do it right and be career-oriented, accept the consequences, and you other women who decide not to have families, (laughs) rise and get tenure. What do you say to that? Well, obviously, that's not really working. I think we've been doing that. You know, we want to support each other's choices. But when we really say that, sometimes we have to support the people who made choices that maybe you don't agree with. And that we have to stop being so competitive about that. I think a lot of times we say, well, you're paid better than I'll ever get paid without really looking at the fact that I'm paid a lot worse than men doing the exact same work. And why doesn't that bother everybody? Because it might not bother you in the moment, but maybe when it's your daughter or your mother and they're dealing with the same thing, it's hard for me to understand everybody not seeing how that's a loss. I mean, I make that point to my husband. If I'm not getting paid what the men in the field are getting paid, you're losing household income too. It's not just me. You've advocated for multiple paths to get tenure. What do you mean by that? I think for just about every field, the established path to tenure has been that you get a tenure track position, you stay on it for five or six years, and then you apply for tenure. Again, those five or six years are very critical for women if they're wanting to start a family. And there's really no way to jump off the tenure track and get back on. A lot of universities have offered things like stopping the tenure clock, where basically they say, okay, you work for three years, we'll stop the tenure clock, we won't count it against you, you can take off six months or a year to have a baby and and spend some time and then get back on the track. Very few people that I'm aware of take that option. And part of it is because it takes some momentum. Once you start research or when you're teaching classes or when you're serving on committees, you're on somebody else's clock. You can't just decide, well, I'm just going to stop at this point. You know, classes have to continue. And your research, particularly if it's grant-funded, is on a timeline. You must complete it by that time. If you have multiple paths, however, if you start saying, well, there's other things that will count toward tenure, I think that will give women a much better chance to reach tenure. A lot of my colleagues, for example, they'll get their doctorate and they'll work as an adjunct. They'll work teaching a couple classes a semester for several years while their children are little. Then when they apply to a tenure track, For some reason, that work doesn't count toward the tenure process. I don't know why. I mean, why couldn't it? Uh, Likewise, I've known women who manage to do their own research without having an academic job. They can apply for a tenure-track job later, but not all universities will accept the work that they've already done. They'll only accept work that was done at a university while you were employed at the university. Why? Because that's the barrier to entry. Exactly. I mean, it's a choice. And I don't think it's a lot of change for an institution to simply open up their choices for women. Has there been a school that's done it successfully, do you know? I am not aware of any. Wow. Yeah. You are now chair of your department and committed to changing these conditions for women there. What changes have you instituted? 
Well, I think a lot of the things, again, are small steps, but have been very useful in the productivity of my faculty. One is truly flex time. It's assumed that everyone in academe has flex time. We are solitary workers. We come and go as we need to. That's not really the case. There are still universities who have some level of expected face time to just be in the office working instead of at home working or another location. And that's very difficult to do when you have a sick child. (laughs) You know, children will sleep. They'll be okay at home. And you're able to do some work. So I allow the faculty to have particularly one day a week that they can work from another location to catch up on not only their work, but to bring some life balance to their needs at home. Isn't there a perception out there that professors are just teaching a couple of classes a couple days a week? Oh, I wish. (laughs) (laughs) I wish it was that easy. Yeah, particularly now, uh, faculty are expected to take on so many more administrative tasks. Some of my colleagues who left the field of social work and came to the academy said, if I thought there were going to be this many case notes and paperwork, I probably would have stayed in the social work field. It has gotten to be that much. You know, it's important that people understand that faculty drive the curriculum. We develop the classes. We do the assessment for our accreditation bodies. We collect that data. There's so much work beyond just teaching the class, and it never ends. It really is morning, noon, and night kind of work. Where do you think tenure itself is going? So here we are talking about women are just really struggling against the glass ceiling of tenure, and yet the very institution of tenure is also threatened. It is, and I think from talking with a lot of my colleagues, many institutions are looking at, you know, five-year contracts or 10-year contracts. And on the surface, it might seem like a good idea, assuming that you'll just get to renew your contract every five or 10 years. But the reality of the academic work is that you plan for the long haul. For example, to get an article published a lot of times can take a minimum of two years to do. You have to plan the research. You have to get it funded. You have to do the research. You have to review the the data. You have to write up the article. You have to submit the article. And once it gets accepted, then they count it for tenure. Well, that's years down the pike. So if you're on a five-year contract and you're getting toward the end of that five year and you're not sure you're going to continue, why would you take on more projects? I think it would actually lower the productivity. Oh, this is fascinating. Diane Hodge, thank you for sharing your insights on With Good Reason. Thank you. Diane Hodge is director of the School of Social Work at Radford University's Waldron College of Health and Human Services. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods and by the University of Virginia Health System, connecting doctors and patients through telemedicine to deliver high-quality care throughout Virginia, the U.S., and the world, uvahealth.com. Support also comes from Smithfield, a global food company committed to providing food in a responsible way so consumers can share meals and memories with family and friends, smithfieldfoods.com. 
With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Elliot Majerzyk, Kelly Libby, Cass Adair, and Allison Byrne. Jeannie Palin handles listener services. Our production assistant is Georgiana Reed. And our interns are Emily Hayes and Adriana Gallo. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.